All right, John chapter 1. So I grew up uh, in church. My dad started a church when I was two. And so I've been listening to sermons for a very long time. As a matter of fact, I used to sit right where my family is sitting right now. And uh, then I went to Bible college, and then I went to seminary. And so I've had the gracious opportunity to, from God to study God's Word for a long time. And what always encourages me, and at the same time blows my mind is that when I get into the Word of God, how there are things in the Word of God that just blow my mind. And I kind of know that they're there, but they're fresh and they're new. And it's just amazing how kind God is to give us the Spirit to illuminate the Word of God in such ways that it just draws us in love and faith into Jesus. So tonight's one of those sermons where as I kept studying uh, John 1, specifically this section, my mind just kept racing about all of this data that I had stored up in my head, but it was all falling together. And so needless to say, I'm going to try my best to get through all of this because I have a lot to say tonight, but I'm, I'm really encouraged by this section. We're going to learn so much from John the Baptist tonight and John the Apostle. And so, um, uh, and I've had two coffees in the last four hours, so buckle up. <laughs> I did a wedding earlier this afternoon, so uh, that kind of drained me a little bit. So I thought, I need some caffeine to keep me going. So now I've got too much caffeine, so... I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth now. <laughs> but um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the parts of studying the Bible, and, I, and, it, and this church is no shock to any of them that all of you have been here long enough, that understanding theology and the purpose of theology is really, really important, uh, which in, in our understanding at CBC is that a, a theology is what creates assurance for the believer. And wrong theology can rip that assurance right from your hands. And so all it takes is just a little bit of uh, the wrong theology to unravel all that God has written in His Word. For instance, we just celebrated the 500th year of the Reformation. And if you think about what we were celebrating was reforming the assurance of believers for uh, several hundred years the Roman Catholic Church started to remove assurance from believers where it was their own righteousness and their own good works. And then all of a sudden Martin Luther begins to read the Bible and goes, wait a minute, this is, this is completely off. And so if you just shift, it doesn't have to be a lot, a lot of shift, but you can just shift just a little bit and all of a sudden this assurance that we're supposed to have from a loving, gracious Father is now gone. And so we're going to see that a little bit even tonight, how it's so important, the, the life of John the Baptist is so important for us to see how just shifting a little bit can move an entire nation away from looking to the Messiah for their assurance. And so this is the Apostle John's kind of narrative uh, from, the, uh, from, from the gospel, bringing in this good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. He, uh, John's going to continue this introduction to this man called John the Baptist. And we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago about how John is it, it is a very strange man, but he was called to that strangeness. Uh, he was called to the, this vow where he couldn't cut his hair, he couldn't 
even touch grapes. He couldn't touch a dead human body because his entire life was dedicated as, a, as an illustration and as a tool to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so if you ever heard a sermon calling you to be like John the Baptist, that's definitely don't want to do that. <laughs> I like cutting my hair. I don't like long hair. But uh, there's more to it than that. So let's go ahead and start reading in John. Pick up where John left off about, the, the, about John the Baptist. I might even just call him the Baptist just to help my, keep you between John the Apostle and John the Baptist. So, uh, Verse 19 says, and following, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So I love how John, when asked this question, who are you? <laughs> he never actually answers the question. He just tells him who he's not. So who are you? Well, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> well, that's not what we asked you. But it is just kind of funny. And John does this a lot in this, in this whole section. Uh, John the Baptist has a very unique way of communicating. But many in that day, many in the day of uh, the time that Christ had come, were claiming to be Christ. Uh, Matthew uh, 24, 24, Jesus himself says, False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so during this time, there were people coming and doing things that would look like a prophet. Like they have the ability of a prophet or they have the ability of Jesus. And so they're looking at John saying, well, John has definitely these gifts. Is he Christ? And John works very hard to demonstrate that he's not. Let's keep uh, reading in verse 22. So they say to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. So in some ways, John the Baptist is playing games with them uh, because he knows what they are trying to do. They've come to him, and they are trying to figure out how is it this man who is baptizing people has the authority to do this. And early on, and I mean, they ask him, "Are you, are you uh, not Zachariah, but are you um, Elijah?" And we learned two weeks ago that even though John's denying this, he's what he's denying is not that because uh, we do know that Jesus um, confirmed that he did come in the spirit of Elijah. It was prophesied that John would come in this way; that he is a prophet uh, coming in. Uh, Moses uh, uh, predicted or prophesied that John would come in this way. And then again, Isaiah. But John, what there, what there was this belief at the time that Elijah's spirit would literally incarnate another human being. And so he just wanted to set the, the record straight that, no, I am not the Elijah. I am not that famous man. And I am definitely not a prophet. I am just the one who was prophesied to come and prepare the way of Jesus. He was trying to lower himself to such a place so that they would stop looking to him and they would start looking to the very person that he was pointing to. That's why he says, look, if you want to know who I am, I'm the one that's pointing you to the one that matters. We're going to see this in a moment. And um, there's been a lot of confusion here. Is, this, is, is, is there a contradiction in Scripture? And I don't think there's a contradiction here at all. Uh, Jesus does affirm this. But John is saying, I am not Elijah in the flesh, 
but he has definitely come, as Jesus said, in the spirit of Elijah. So we're not going to get into that. We got into that a couple weeks ago. But John understands his one job, and that was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, and ends up even quoting Isaiah. So who am I? I am the one calling you to repent from your spiritual idolatry. That's what I'm here for. You live seeking salvation by the law, or have abandoned uh, the Jewish law altogether, the Israelite law, Moses' law altogether, and so I'm calling you to repent back into this. And so John's baptism is a repentance baptism, which we're going to learn here in just a minute. So read verse 24. It says, Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. A little historical context. They wanted to see if John had this authority. So you can't, uh, no, no human being can just come and create a new uh, law, a new requirement, or a new baptism. They had to be assigned by God. So, so this is why in the Old Testament, if a man says, I'm a prophet of God, and you must all give me money... <laughs> Uh, the requirement of the law was if this man is off by just a hair, you're to stone him, right? And so they're coming to John saying, you're doing something new. Who's giving you this authority to do this? Uh, So let's keep reading verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So uh, John the Baptist, again, doesn't really give them a direct answer, but gives them the Christ instead. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. <laughs> Just stop there for a moment. Just imagine having a conversation with this guy. First of all, he lived alone by himself for a long time. So when he was born, his parents were older. So he probably raised himself from a very young age. And then he lived in the desert. So his social skills may have been a little off. <laughs> just in this dialogue, it's kind of funny. So who gave you this authority? Well, I baptize with water. It's like, well, that's not what we asked you. <laughs> but this is what John's doing. He's setting it up. He's saying, the baptism that I am offering you, it is just the gateway. It's just the introduction to the one who is going to baptize you all. So he says, I baptize with water, but among you, stand, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. On a geographical level, what's, what John is doing, you're going to just watch the ministry of Jesus go from one side to the other. That's kind of, so this is the beginning of the chapter and when Jesus is crucified. Uh, so he's going to walk us through that. Just, that's why he puts that in there. But I'm baptizing to call people back to the faith of Messiah. So water in the, uh, so in the Old Testament, when a Gentile would want to proselytize, or they would want to come into the Israelite camp, into the Israelite faith, in the Jewish faith, they would, the, the, the father would be circumcised, and then the entire family would be baptized. They would be completely submerged in the water and come out as a ritual cleaning, as a demonstrating that they are leaving uh, the Gentile world behind, and they are becoming a part of faith in God in the Israelite world. And so what John is saying is that system was so messed up, he wasn't calling Gentiles to baptism. This is why the Pharisees are coming to him and saying, why are you baptizing Jews? Jews should not be being baptized. They're already in the faith by birth. And so John is saying, I'm baptizing you because of where you have gone. You are, you are not, and this is why this phrase early on when he says, there's one that stands among you and you don't even know it. He said, I'm out here trying to get your attention because the Messiah is here. 
And I'm the people who finally understand that, they're being baptized into repentance. They're repenting away from their uh, looking to the law for themselves or looking, uh, a lot of them had just become pagan. So he's saying these people, it's just a, a symbol of them recognizing that they need to uh, put their focus back in looking for the Messiah. So John is saying, he's here. He's right here. Look at verse 26. John answered them saying, I baptize them with water, but among you stands one you do not know. So what the Baptist is saying next is extremely uh, telling from how understanding the greatness of Jesus really is. He says in verse 27, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not even worthy to untie. So, very on, very early on in John the Baptist's ministry, he is. He, he there. You have to understand. There's 400 year gap we talked about. So the Israelites have never seen a prophet in 400 years. They've seen these false prophets, and they've been able to identify them. You're fake. And now all of a sudden, John has this massive following. Of course, these Pharisees wouldn't have been sent out if John was a nobody. So clearly, all these people are coming out to see John. And John's gaining this popularity. He's the Elijah. He's a prophet. And what he says is, you have no idea. You are supposed to be looking for someone that's way greater than I am. Way greater than I am. And so, uh, to kind of get this, the full impact of what he's saying, let me read you this quote, just kind of understanding this phrase is actually a, a pretty unique phrase from John, this idea of, under, you know, we, we understand it's a lowly position, but there, there's a cultural part to it. It says this, to get the full impact of this, we must bear in mind that disciples did, not, uh, did many services for their teachers. Teachers in ancient Palestine were not paid. It would have been a terrible thing for a teacher to ask for money. And so these men, uh, like John or anyone else that would teach as a discipler, would not be paid, uh, be paid money. So the way that we'd make money is through gifts. But in partial compensation, disciples were in the habit of performing small services for their rabbis instead. But they had to draw the line somewhere. A menial task like loosening the sandal thong came under his heading. So there's actually a writing from 8250 that mentions this. It says, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosening of his sandal thong. So they're like, there, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level at which you can't go down to. And John says, I am the disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet he says, the lowest of the lowest that I'm not even allowed to do, I'm not even worthy to do that. Like You don't even understand how great this man is, the Messiah. You're looking at me. You need to look past me. And so what's fascinating about John's observance of Jesus is Jesus' observance of John. I read this last time, which is Matthew 11, 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So in all of history, up to that point, and all the people that we think were amazing in the Old Testament, and everything that's happened in the New Testament, Jesus says, John's the greatest man. And what does John say? I'll tell you how great I am. I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. I mean, if you just stop for a moment and go, how foolish it is. So if Jesus says John's the greatest man, and John observes himself in light of Jesus... And he says, you don't want to look at me. Like, my worthiness is below, below his shoes. Like, I'm not even allowed to carry his shoes. That's how low I am. So I think it's hilarious that when we do character studies of men's lives, 
I'm going, well, Jesus said John's the greatest, and John said, please don't even look at me. <laughs> so these, the character studies of men in the Old Testament, I think, right there wrap up in my mind going, we're missing the point. If we're not looking to Jesus and all of these men and women's lives in the Bible are pointing to Jesus, then we're missing it. And so I don't, you know, what's interesting is if you read people in the New Testament who actually interacted with Jesus, like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul spent like years in the desert with Jesus. It's one-on-one, he and Jesus, which that would have probably been like amazing. We don't know anything about that. And then Paul gets around him and goes, oh man, I'm nobody. I mean, go read Galatians, right? Yeah, I'm nobody. Jesus is who you want to pay attention to. He's constantly pointing us to Jesus Christ. And so the focus, what I love about this church and our main, our main church, is that the focus is taking our eyes and putting them on Jesus Christ from every angle possible. And what's fun about the uh, apostle John is that John is kind of a shotgun approach. So you, if you have what's called the Synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all flow together. John's like, I like this and this and this and this and this. And then he goes, here's all the angles of Jesus. This is all the angles of Jesus. So this is, this is another way of what he's saying is that humanity, even it's in its greatest form, is so far beneath Jesus Christ that Jesus has to be the focus and the emphasis. And so what's fascinating to me as well is that John is extremely affectionate towards Jesus and the apostles are extremely affectionate for Jesus, but yet there remains this respect because they understand that he is God. And I've always struggled with this idea that, you know, Jesus is cool. Yeah, Jesus is cool. And I'm going, no, I don't don't think Jesus is cool. God describes him to be the Lamb of God, not cool. Or... Uh, he, sometimes he's described as Jesus my homeboy, right? Like, I just have these conversations. It was just me and Jesus. You know, I was sitting on my back porch, just me and Jesus having this conversation. And I'm going, no, he's, he's actually your substitute for a wrathful God. That's, that's what he is. He's not your homeboy. Or, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. And I'm like, actually, no, he sustains the world with his hands. So he's not your co-pilot. He is your pilot. I mean, he's your everything. He's your breath. He's your heartbeat. He's your eternality. He's everything. And that, I think, is the weight of what John felt, was that there's an affection for Jesus, but at the same time, there's a deep respect for who he is, saying, I'm not even worthy to be around him. Like, on, on the level of worthiness, I am the lowest of the lowest. So when you read the Old Testament, John the Baptist should be helpful in reminding us that God wants us to see Jesus as the fulfilled promise of the Father to his redeemed elect. Every story is pushing us towards men are failures. At their best, they're the least when it relates to the person of Jesus. So to emphasize anyone else's life uh, seems uh, comical at the point. So the, author, the authors were not interested. And this is what's always funny to me if you read the Old Testament, the authors were never interested in examining their lives or the lives of others for helpful tips of marriage or parenting or business. I came across some website last night, and I cringed because it was like the Elijah group for something, and then it was the Timothy investment over here. And I was like, I don't know if I'd ever invest my money there. Uh, <laughs> but it's just interesting what we do to the Bible. There's a phrase that Byron says that I think it's, I think it's super helpful. He says, don't uh, don't blame the Bible for your ideas. <laughs> so we get these cool ideas about the Bible, and it's like, I don't, you can't blame the Bible for that. But this context, I think, is a good reminder 
that men left to themselves without a healthy dose of the gospel, we quickly turn themselves, we turn ourselves to find our own righteousness or find the need to promote ourselves. And so this is where moralism came in. Well, this is exactly what's going on with Israel, is that they have lost sight of the Messiah. Morality, either the lack of morality or trusting in the law for righteousness, has uh, become their mode for salvation. And so let's keep reading. This is what John says to this scenario. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love that verse. We're going to get to that in a minute. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, John's ministry started way before Jesus did. So in the rabbinic world, John should have had the authority. And John says, oh, wait, he was way before me because he's always existed. We talked about this in John 1, 1 through 5. I myself did not know him. Just for a moment, just stop from a historical standpoint. Do you, know, do you realize that John was the cousin of Jesus? So he grew up with Jesus, but didn't know that he was the Messiah. And we're going to find out when he actually found out. Could you imagine going, oh, you're the Messiah. Wow. <laughs> that moment of realization. And we're just drawing that from his context. This is what John is saying. I, I myself did not know him. Before this purpose, I came back. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. What did John say? I baptize with what? Water. But one is coming who baptizes with the Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So these are the events. So again, John doesn't work in chronology, uh, chronological order. So these events have already happened. John says, I was given this commission to baptize, calling people to repent and be baptized. And as I'm doing this, the one who called me to this, which is God, said, by the way, doing this will cause you to be identifying the Messiah. And so Jesus comes and asks John to baptize him. We can read this in the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke. They actually all record it except for John. And so John baptizes Jesus and the Bible says the spirit descended like a dove. And rested upon Jesus. And that was at that moment, John's like, that's the lamb. And so when John sees Jesus walking, he, this event has already happened. He says, look, behold means to look. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you have um, uh, this, the, you have uh, in, let's see, John, uh, let's see here. Was it Isaiah chapter 11? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 11. Real quick, I'll read this to you. It says, uh, there, shall come fro- there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in the translation, you'll notice that all those spirits are the capital Spirit. So it's not that within Jesus would have this, but this is Holy Spirit coming down. So this is a prophecy that John is seeing be fulfilled, saying this is the Messiah. 
Now, I want to go back to the most, really, the most important words of John the Baptist when he said to these people standing around him, he said to them, Behold the Lamb of God. That phrase, going back to verse 29. John clearly understood the teaching of the Old Testament. He's quoting it a lot. There's a lot of Isaiah is quoted in the book of John. And he saw the fulfillment of the prophecy standing right there in front of him. And Isaiah's famous description of the suffering servant, if you have your Bibles, please turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. This is where John, when he uses this phrase, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's theology and John's understanding is being formed by the the prophecies of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at several tonight. And just seeing that that phrase has so much power packed into it, especially those of us who understand as Jesus is our Lamb. So let me just read through you, read to you Isaiah chapter 53, starting verse 1. Who has believed what, has heard, sorry, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Remember when he said, he's standing among you and you don't even know him? He was ordinary. That was prophesied. That was part of it. No one would know. So people say, well, how come there's nothing written about the life of Jesus when he was a child? Because it was designed that way, that he would grow up and be among them as normal. He was despised and yet rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So stop real quick on verse uh, 4 here. It says he carried our griefs and our sorrows. When John says, behold the Lamb of God, who what? takes away the sin, that same word has that concept of carry, who carried the sin of the world, right? So John is giving so much, like all of Isaiah, packed into one little phrase here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And, that, and with his wounds we are healed. Before I continue, in the Old Testament you have, G, you have the Passover lamb, right? So the, the story of the Exodus and it says that you have, well we're going to get into that in a moment. But part of the Passover, part of the, the atonement was to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the goat, and that's known as the scapegoat. And what they would do is the priest would dip his hands in the blood, he would put it on the goat, and they would walk the goat to the end of the city, and they would let the goat go. And that was the symbol of all of the sins being put on the goat, and it was named as a scapegoat. You would never see that goat again. And so you have this image again of saying, Isaiah saying that our transgressions, our iniquities were placed upon Jesus and he became the scapegoat for us. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord, so this is a symbol of John and the Baptist, right? Calling people back to the way. 
This is a foretelling this is what's going to happen. And the Lord laid his and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, he considered that he was cut off of the land and the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Man, if you know the story of Jesus' burial, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering, his offspring, sorry. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall be the righteous one, my servant. Make many to be acquainted or counted righteous. And take note of this phrase, because we're going to look at it later, where he says, my servant who make many to be accounted righteous, not all, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. So powerful prophecy. And so all of that summed up. And John says, look, that's Isaiah 53. He's right there. And he sums it up. The lamb who carries the sin of the world. And so in Corinthians 5, 7, you'll have to turn there real quick. I'm just going to read you one verse. Paul makes this connection. He calls Jesus the Passover lamb. It says, uh, cleansing out the old leaven and that you may be a new lump as you, re- as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So to make this connection, you have a, the, the covenant made with Abraham that God is going to, through him, bring a seed that will be the redemption of his people. They end up, uh, through lots of stories, they end up in Egypt, right? And then they explode as a population to the point where they're going to be pushed out. And on the day that they're leaving, the command is given that they are to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and they are to kill it and put the blood over the doorpost as a symbol of God's blood being shed. And they are to be ready to leave. And so this is the exodus, the redemption out. And what's interesting is that becomes a holiday. That becomes a celebration, as we know as Passover. And so the Passover lamb is a picture of the ultimate lamb. This is why John's saying the one, the, the exodus, and, and just to remind you on just from a time scale, Jesus is actually killed during Passover. So he does become the ultimate Passover lamb. And so you have this, this image that John is giving that Jesus is the Passover lamb. The, the, the sins that are put on the world, the, the sins of the world are put on this lamb as, an, as a picture. And Jesus is made this connection for us. Uh, there's also one other last connection. We'll just make this quickly. Is that you have Abraham, the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? And so Abraham's leading Isaac up to the mountain, and they're carrying the wood, they're carrying the 
fire, and they don't have anything. They're carrying the straps, but they don't have a lamb. And so in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 22, Isaac says to his father, Father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Powerful phrase, he says, Abraham says. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. It's interesting that he didn't say God will provide for us. He said for himself. God's the one bringing redemption. So to appease his wrath, what must God provide? A way to appease his wrath. And so there's this little phrase that's in there. It's saying God provides this lamb. So John's phrase, behold, what does he say? The lamb of God, the provided lamb. And that lamb takes away the sins of the world. And so what happens when they get up to the mountain? Abraham gets ready to kill his son and God stops him and says, I will provide. I will provide for you a lamb. And then a lamb is provided or a ram is provided. Now, early on, I talked about how theology is really important. Um, And this is the part of theology where I believe can create so much strength and encouragement in our assurance. When he uses this phrase, who takes away the sin of the world, John didn't just say it quickly or flippantly, but there there is a powerful meaning here that's really explained throughout the rest of his book. And the, the other apostles end up picking up and writing about it as well. But what John is saying here is, is a definite statement. It's not potentially Jesus is going to take away the sin of the world. If people do something, it is a definite statement. Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. So you, we really have two options. And these are, this is kind of what the Reformation reaffirmed what the Reformation brought back to us as far as our assurance. So you have two options to understand this. If Jesus takes away the sin of the world, one of your options is universalism. So if he takes away all sin from every single person, that means God cannot punish people for sin because that sin has been paid for already. It's what we call double punishment. So the problem is with universalism is that it's very clear in Scripture that Jesus returns in the book of Revelation and he separates the wheat from the tare. There's this idea that there are those who do not believe in Christ. And so there's a struggle with understanding of universalism. There are some people who believe, we're not going to get into this, but you spend a time in hell, then, you, then everyone is eventually saved. But universalism doesn't work because it's very clear that not all are saved according to Scripture. Then you have this idea what's called potentialism. So when Jesus Christ died, he created the potential ability for everyone to be saved. And this is very common in what we call the Arminian slash free will world. But here's the problem with this, is that if God made a potential salvation for us, the verbiage doesn't work because it's all declared of being finished, that he actually accomplished this work. And so the, some people get hung up on the idea of uh, world. He takes away the entire worlds. Well, we are given an explanation of what he means by that, this idea of that Jesus coming and taking. So in the context of John, John actually later on in chapter 3 when he's dealing with Nicodemus, which is going to be a fun section as well, 
Nicodemus is really having this hard time with, wait a minute, how are Gentiles being saved? This just doesn't make any sense. And so John explains it to them and uses the concept of world again. But there's this idea of what does world mean or who, how is it that Jesus can have what we call a particular atonement? He actually saved people when he died on the cross. So when it says that he took the sin away, it literally means he took the sin away. But just, I'm going to run through some verses with you real quick uh, if you want to write these down. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 says this. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Talking about the lamb. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. What John is saying to a group of Jews, Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of every world, everyone in the world. Not just Jews, but Gentiles included. And so you have at the end of the world, at the, uh, the, end, the end times, the scroll is open. He's saying every people group, not just Jews, but every people group is being saved. John, later on in the book of John, John 10, 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Saying God has come and sacrificed him for the very people that God set, as we know from the book of Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, those to whom he set his affection on, those to whom he elected. Um, Isaiah 53, just go back there. I said, remember this later. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, his, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from the transgression of my people, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgression. And so you constantly are having this idea that God did actually pay for sins, and he paid for the sins of his sheep, for those to whom God, uh, later on in John 6, we're going to see, draws to himself. And here's the question that you have to ask yourself when an ancient times uses the concept of all. Here's a great illustration of this. If you have your, just turn over to Luke chapter 2 real quick. So in Luke chapter 2, the doctor is writing and he says, verse 1, and this is where a good question is, does all mean all or does world mean world? And that means every single human being. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, let me ask you a question. From a historical standpoint, do you think China and Japan were in that census? No, right? What was the concept? In that area, in that idea, all of that world, that known world of those people were registered. And so there, there's many times throughout Scripture, it says all of Jerusalem went out to see John the Baptist. Do you think all of, like, all the sick, those in birth, those who are on their deathbed, all went out? No, the concept was there's a lot of people coming out to see them. And so we just have to be careful from a context. If Jesus is saving the sins of every single human being, and that's what John means, then we're universalists. Well, clearly that can't be what it means. And this is why this is important. This is important. John 19.30 says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. If it is a potential salvation, 
then Jesus didn't take away the sins and we are left in our sins until we fix that situation. So Jesus is over here standing saying, I can have forgiveness for you if you do something. Forgiveness of your sins is available for you if you do something. And that is, put out whatever requirement you want in there. Repentance. So this is what the Catholic Church did, is they removed Jesus' final work on the cross and made it potential, saying, if you perform the sacraments and you don't do a sin that's a sin unto death, then you can have the redemption of Christ. But it's not even full, because sometimes you can die with sin in your life, and then you still have to go to purgatory to have it paid off there. The moment you remove the final work of Jesus Christ, you and I sit here, and we will always question that I really, really pray the prayer and really mean it. Do, have I done enough to really demonstrate that I really am a believer? What ends up happening is the work that Jesus Christ did, all of that work, I mean, just from a historical standpoint, this is, in my mind, it created a lot of encouragement for me today. There's a four-day period, so the Passover is supposed to happen. They have four days. They're supposed to pick a lamb. The lamb is to be blemless with, without, without failure. And it needs to be at the prime of the, the lamb's life, which is at one. And so they examine him for four days to make sure that this lamb is healthy. And then after the examination, the Passover happens. And it's an illustration of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ comes into the scene in his prime of his life. He's examined for three to four years. He is proven to be righteous, Right? They tried in every way to trip Jesus up. Satan tried to tempt them. Jesus proved himself to be perfect, and then he took on our sins. Now, if he didn't prove himself to be perfect, he doesn't have the right to take on our sins. So he has the right. So our iniquities were laid on him, and Jesus says, I finished it. I did it. So if he did it, there's nothing left for us to do. You remove that, and you make it potential, then it rests on our abilities, and you and I have no assurance. If he paid for all sins, past, present, and future, we are secured by one way. And what's that one way? What was John calling people to? Faith. By faith. And this is why the reformers fought so hard for faith alone. It has to be faith alone. Otherwise, it's partially faith in Jesus and partially faith in my works. And this is where we say a lot of times, it's faith, not faithfulness. It's faith in Jesus Christ, not in our own faithfulness. So that's where the coffee comes in, right there. <laughs> but un- understanding, you just shift a little bit of what John says, just a little bit, and our assurance goes from something that's exciting. Oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes! And that goes to, thank you, Jesus. I hope I can finish it up. Thanks, I appreciate that. We remove the assurance. Theology is so important. It's so important for us so that we can... Live and understand out of joy the gospel. That's what I love about every week when we take communion. It's once again to remember, remind us, the Lamb did it all and we're here to receive. He did it all. There's nothing left for us. It is finished. When we take the broken body of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, it should remind us, as John says, he did it. He carried it. He left nothing for us. What a great reminder. What, what I got excited about as I was studying this, it just, it just gets me excited to think that studying the gospel never gets old. And I know everybody says this when they preach, but there was so much I left out 
just because the connections are all there. So the good thing is, is that John kind of repeats himself, so everything I left out, we're going to get to dive into it as we go. So it's going to be so much fun. All right, let me pray, and we will uh, enjoy receiving the benefits of Christ again this evening. Father, we are humbled by the fact that you would allow us to be your children. We are so low and meaningless, and yet you take your son, you provide for us a lamb, and then you slaughter him. You say it's even pleasing to do so, so that you can then raise us up to be your children. And Father, we, out of gratitude, we attempt to worship you in love. In Jesus' name, amen.